Welcome back to The Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. My name's James Marley, and I'm a co-founder of Livewire. And this week, I'm stepping in for Dave Thornton as your host on the episode. My guest today is Warren Robertson, a portfolio manager and analyst at Lazard Asset Management. Warren's been with the firm for 20 years and is responsible for managing the global equity franchise strategy, as well as Lazard's well-renowned global listed infrastructure fund. We recently asked Livewire readers to name the asset classes they were most likely to increase exposure to over the next 12 months, and infrastructure was sitting there in the top three. So the timing is great, and infrastructure is gonna be a big part of our discussion today. Lazard's infrastructure strategy has delivered returns in excess of 14% per annum for the last decade and 10.7% per annum since inception back in 2005. So it's not surprising that Warren and his team are held in very high regard by the market. Just a reminder, if you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of this wire so you get notified whenever we post content. If you're not a Livewire subscriber yet, head on over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Well, Warren, welcome to the Rules of Investing. It's great to have you on the show. Happy to be here. I did try and find some background information uh, about you on the internet. It's pretty scarce, so um, I do enjoy a challenge. Good chance to find out a bit more about how you invest in your own background. And as I said in my introduction, really excited to learn um, what you've got to teach us about infrastructure in that asset class. But let's get a, a quick background. You, you joined Lazard in April 2001. It was during a market sell-off. Could you tell me about your early experiences as an investor and, and why you joined Lazard? Yeah, it was an interesting time. Um, prior to that, I'd actually been an advisor um, to investors in the in the infrastructure space for many years. But this was my first, you know, real opportunity to to do what I'd always wanted to do and to to manage money actively uh, on behalf of clients. And it happened, as you say, at a, a pretty pivotal moment, April two thousand and one. Um, in many senses, it, it, it occurred at a time when I actually felt vindicated about what, you know, I'd been looking at the market for the couple of years, you know, as a value guy watching markets, you know, value eyeballs and, you know, punctuation marks more than it actually valued cash flow and, and earnings um, became quite frustrating for you know, a young guy who was an old-fashioned investor. Um, but the, uh, the you know, the opportunity came to go work with Lazard. I grabbed it with both hands and, uh, and you know, I've been uh, hap- happily there ever since. It's, it's, uh, but the timing was interesting, that's, that, that's for sure. It's almost as if, you know, you feel like in those moments and uh, I had one of my peers tell me about it uh, Describe it beautifully. I think um, it's you're at the party, but you're the designated driver, and it's only when everyone's had too much alcohol that they need a lift home that they then come to you to, um, you know, provide that service. And that's what it really was. And uh, to be frank, it feels a little bit like that right now. I was about to say, I think the phone might be uh, be ringing hot, hot from a few of the uh, the other market participants wanting a lift home. Warren, yeah, no, it's a uh, it uh, look. You know, if you look back. My investing career now, and you know, probably from the mid '90s, I've been advising clients on on looking at infrastructure in particular, but then uh, 
markets more generally. Um, I, I'd say, you know, 2001, 2007, and probably the last six to 12 months, this is, these are the, the, the moments when, you know, uh, the headiness takes over, people get um, uh, wrapped up in themes and stories rather than, you know, businesses, cash flows and earnings. And, um, you know, reality brings them back to back to life. And, um, and that's, that's the point we're at now, I think. In investing markets, we love the the use of jargon and terms and, and value, even though it it's a relatively common term. Um, it, it does have an element of jargon to it, but maybe just tell me why value is appealing to you and what it means if you're explaining it to the average person at a barbecue. Yeah, sure. Um, to to me, it's it's interesting because when you think about it, it's it's the only. I, I don't know any other way to invest. So essentially, you know, as, as I explained to to clients, and I have done this for for many years. Ultimately, what I do every day is a pretty simple job. I spend all my time focusing on two things: the earnings of a company and what multiple you put that on, or the cash flows of a particular asset and the discount rate that you apply to it. And uh, my definition of of a value investor is someone who does that work fundamentally comes up with what they truly believe is the intrinsic value of that business with you know conservative assumptions uh, here's the jargon again a margin of safety in the way they consider those uh, forecasts and then you come up with what you think a business is worth and then if you can buy it at less than that that's you know the, the moment at which you allocate capital now if it, it can be the, and this is another truism of life but it's something I've, I've been saying a lot of and particularly the last two to three years is in in recent times, it, it's all been about the themes, the stories, and people wanting to buy the best businesses in the world. And if you buy the best business in the world or the best asset in the world, and I've heard consultants, clients, uh, commentators make these statements in my career many times, typically at the time when things are hard to justify. But they say if you just buy a really great business, you can you know you'll never go wrong. I don't believe that. I think the greatest business in the world will make a poor investment if you don't pay the right price for it. And I think that's the definition of a value investor, someone who's prepared to you know, appropriately allocate capital based on what they believe is the difference between intrinsic value and market price. And you know, at, if the greatest business in the world is trading at a price you can't justify, then you don't own it. It's as simple as that. Well, let's talk a bit about the investing backdrop at the moment because it is moving. And um, it's been a, a bit of a turbulent ride in, in 2022. Um, inflation at the moment is, is running rampant in the US. Rates are marching higher abroad and domestically. This is now being accompanied by calls that we've got a, we're going to be facing a recession, particularly in the US, that call is getting louder. So how much of a concern is this backdrop for you? And what are some of the assumptions that you're considering with regards to inflation? Yeah. Now, I probably, (laughs) if you think about the way we invest money, over the last 15, 20 odd years, we've had a pretty consistent approach to the way we we value companies. So we're looking at on three to five year view where we think long-term bond yields will be um, and using that as the appropriate uh, risk-free rate to then apply a discount rate to and cash flows linked to where we think long-term GDP is. And we explicitly link risk-free rates to GDP rates so that essentially the numerator and denominator, or get away from the jargon, the cash flows and the discount rate are explicitly linked. And I think markets have become 
very easily influenced by the belief that we're going back to trend growth rates, but we'll always have low interest rates. And that's how you were able to sort of walk around justifying in your own mind that Microsoft was worth 35 times cash flow, when in reality, I always thought that was a stretch. Um, so we've, we haven't changed our long-run assumptions. So what does that mean? We think risk-free rate for Australia, 6% nominal. We think risk-free rate for the United States, 5% nominal. And we think that long-term GDP growth in Australia on a nominal basis, 6% for the US, 5 And so we link those two numbers. That's where we've been. That's how we valued things. So, you know, in the last 6 to 12, 18, 24 months, really, people will look at our graphical representation of valuations and go, my God, everything looks really expensive. Why is that the case? Well, it's because we're valuing the world through that lens. So what does that mean? What has changed recently is we've been more uh, conscious of the fact that inflation will be above the 2 to 3% long run assumption that we've been using in the short to medium term. We think that will last for uh, the medium term, we don't think this is a transitory uh, moment in time where you know you'll go forward two quarters and we'll be back to normal normal times. And I think the reserve banks and central banks are now starting to sort of believe in that. Um, and this is something we've been warning investors about now for two years. So I think the key error. And you know you, you don't want to sound like you know, I told you so, and you know the boy who cried wolf, and all these sort of things. But the key error that virtually everyone in investment markets made, bar a few people, was that they looked at the pandemic and treated it like a normal recession. And in economic terms, nothing could be further from the truth because in a normal recession, and if you, you know, you're sitting at home and you've got a pad and paper in front of you, um, grab, a, grab a pen out. And if you're not, then get your two arms and do the same thing that I'll just do in, in the studio here. Put your left and your right arm across each other and that's your supply and demand curve. In a normal recession, what happens is demand falls. People make the choice not to demand the same level of goods. Okay, so demand goes backwards, supply remains relatively fixed, and if you think about what that does, that is deflationary for prices. That means you are going to have deflation. That is not what happened in the pandemic. What happened in the pandemic was, and this is almost uniquely occurring in economic terms, is the supply curve moved to the left first. And then the demand curve moved with it. So we weren't able to go and buy things, not because we necessarily didn't want to, but we just physically couldn't. You know, businesses couldn't go and hire people, not necessarily because they didn't want to, but because there was just no one physically around who was able to leave their home. So the supply curve moves to the left, the demand curve then moved with it, and that meant that that's, it's sort of mixed as to what that does to prices. It's certainly not deflationary. And what the central banks did and what governments did around the world is it went recession, pump money. That's all we've got to do is just pump money, throw money at the situation, loosen the supply curve, up, up, up the money supply. And of course, the inference of that was when we looked at it back in first principles and said, this is different, we think this could lead to an, in, an inflationary out, uh, outbreak. And that's essentially what's happened. Um, you, you mentioned the barbecue. I always like to talk to my favourite investors, mum and dad, um, because dad's a motor mechanic and mum, you know, it's not politically correct to use this term now, but she still calls herself a housewife. 
um, homemaker. Uh, you know, when you talk to them about why interest rates were low, they're pretty, you know, they're not financially sophisticated people, but they will say to you, oh, it's because the world was in trouble. I think too many people in financial markets didn't realise it was because the world was in trouble. They thought it was because we're going to make markets stay high forever. And so the combination of low interest rates, people believing that that was going to remain, you know, the case for years and years to come, as well as the conundrum that faced the globe when the pandemic hit, the supply curve shifting to the left, creating inflation has created the perfect storm for, you know, inflation that we have today. And, you know, it's, as, you know, Philip Lowe said, it's likely to hit 7% in Australia by the end of the year. I suspect he's going to be short. Um, the big issue for Australia will be the Aussie dollar. We import everything. We manufacture nothing. Everything's going to cost us more. Um, you know, look at the price of fruit, fruit and vegetables, and this and this affects everyday people more than it affects you know people that work in investment markets and get paid too much money. Um, so I'll get off my political bandwagon. Sorry. Is that what's driving the volatility at the moment? The fact that markets are realising that central banks are not there to hold up asset prices, and they seem determined to get inflation under control with what effectively what with whatever it takes, which was the same terminology used to keep the world out of trouble. I think you're absolutely right. I think people have come to the realization that they're not there for Wall Street. They're there for Main Street, if you use the old colloquial term. Um, and I think that is the realization of that now is that they will do what it takes to curb inflation because they know the inflation bogeyman is an incredibly dangerous thing. Um, the, the problem, and to go back without being making this a political statement, the problem I have with that is they should have been more aware to what they were doing to asset prices for the decades before. But that's a totally different conversation we can have at another time. Um, it's, all, it's all right to say there and go, oh, we're not worrying about markets today, when in reality, you know, Greenspan and a few other people were worrying about markets decades earlier when they probably should have been focusing on Main Street, not on Wall Street. Warren, are you starting to factor recessionary outcomes into your thinking? We've we factored in a, a, a dampening of the economic outlook. It's, it's, it's really um, difficult to make that call today. We, we certainly we haven't got to the stage where we, you know, if we go back to 2007-8, we sat down as a team and came up with two likely scenarios that were going to come out of, you know, the, the Great Recession, as it was then called. Um, and they were either... What we collect, what we termed fire and ice. Okay, you're either going to have an outbreak of inflation, pump priming the economy, trying to sort of inflate away the debt problem, or you were just going to bore it out with low levels of uh, economic growth, low deflationary levels. And we kind of got something somewhere in the middle in 2007. Central banks did a remarkable job of keeping the world um, out of you know the fragility and danger that it could have fallen itself into, um, but they really just pushed the uh, push the problem down the down the path. We haven't yet started to build recessions into our forecast, but we certainly have tempered our view around economic growth, and we have got higher levels of inflation in the short to medium term, and that's tilting our bias even more so in the infrastructure portfolio away from the United States and particularly U.S. utilities towards Europe, Australia, and. UK utilities um, and to uh, toll roads in those three jurisdictions. And uh, and the difference there is because of the way regulation works around how 
inflation is protected in inverted commas for those types of infrastructure assets. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's easy. It rolls off the tongue really easily that inflate. Oh, if you want inflation protection, you just buy infrastructure. Well, that is true, but you have to understand how infrastructure is translated through regulatory returns and through concessioned toll increases um, to investors. It's it's how does it affect the cash flow of the business? That's important, um, and there are subtle nuances that are incredibly important today. We'll we'll, we'll dig into those. In a, in a little bit, um, but you've touched on there on inflation. Uh, last week, the Reserve Bank governor appeared on the seven thirty report and talked about um, resetting inflation ex- expectations here in Australia. In the US, it's it's running running hot. In a recent presentation, you actually described infrastructure as being the best inflation protection available. Now, um, I learned on the way in that you manage twenty billion dollars worth of. Uh, funds that invest in infrastructure. So I think you're a credible source. I'll get you to explain that term to me or that 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 philosophy to me. Yeah, sure. When people think about inflation protection, they normally think about assets and I, I would argue three or four buckets. So they, they co- commonly will go to commodities. They'll think about, you know, and I, I would throw into that, you know, uh, aluminium, copper, coal, um, and particularly gold. They would think about real estate, and you know the the REITs or just uh, or just property generally, and then they they put infrastructure in. The differences between those three are pretty stark when you think about why do they give you inflation protection. So, if you think about commodities, commodities provide inflation protection because essentially at the end of the day, the commodity price is set by the marginal cost of production. So what happens is. Inflation feeds through the cost base of the commodity producer, and that then reflects the price that the commodity is sold for ultimately. Now, there's speculation in every market in the short term, but in the long term, the price of a commodity is set by the marginal cost of production. So inflation is implicit through the cost base. It's not explicit. Then you think about REITs. How do they give you inflation protection? Well, again, it's it's kind of supply and demand, but it's also typically short-term contracts. So your property or landlord will have a three, five, maybe slightly longer lease term, and there'll be an inflation element to that lease agreement. Um, and then what happens at the end of that is you're then free to make your choice. So, you know, we recently moved office space. You know, we uh, we open ourselves up to the to the um, to the property market and making the call about whether or not we want to invest in. Uh, sorry, whether or not we wanted to move uh, from our offices to another office, and that's simple supply and demand. So again, it's kind of a bit more like the commodities. Infrastructure has inflation protection embedded in its regulation or in the tolls that it uh, charges or, or landing charges that it uh, charges for airports and toll roads. So. That is a contractual or regulated inflation protection. It is not something that is subject to supply and demand. And that's the key difference. So if I'm in the UK and the and the inflation RPI number is 8.2%, I think it was, that is the number that gets fed into the asset base of national grids, regulatory asset base. It gets fed into United Utilities water assets, and they will increase by that stated inflation number. Um, and so that's that's the key difference, and that's why inflation inflation protection is almost unique in terms of its 
uh, strength of the inflation protection attributes for infrastructure as opposed to the other two alternatives. And then, of course, there's the other op obvious uh, um, benefits that infrastructure has. They're monopoly assets. You know, even the best building in the world is subject to competition from another building that's built. And commodities, by their very definition, are perfectly competitive. Um, there's a lower risk of capital loss because they're not their monopoly assets are essential services. So their volume demands, uh, pandemics aside, when people aren't allowed to travel, uh, are typically much more uh, stable and consistent than what you would find with commodity producers and, and, and even REITs. Um, and therefore, the, your risk of capital loss is significantly less. So there's a, a whole bunch of other good investment reasons why infrastructure is um, uh, should be considered for people's portfolios. And personally, I think everyone should have some infrastructure in their portfolios, but particularly now with inflation becoming more of a, an, an issue, um, their inflation protection attributes are unique. If we roll back just a couple of years and think about the environment that we've been in where we've had you know, decades of falling interest rates, assets with the, the cash flow characteristics that infrastructure have have been bid up. There's been some amazing rolling years of returns for infrastructure assets. Now you're talking about um, the asset class performing well in a rising interest rate environment. So is it a? It sounds a little bit of a case of having your cake and eating it, Warren. What's the what's the what's the tension there between the tailwind of falling rates? Um, but still performing during a rising rate environment? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it is true. I mean, so from the context that rising rates will typically be negative for um, uh, assets like infrastructure. The difference there is, is why are the rates rising? If it's, if it's inflation that's rising, and as I said, the inflation attributes and the protection attributes are, are, are very strong, then that really gets reflected in higher cash flows and there should be an offset. So yes, if you're valuing with spot bond yields, which I argue you shouldn't and we don't, but if you do, as your bond yield rises, your cash flow rises as well because essentially it's inflation on both sides of that equation. If the real rate rises and then your discount rate rises and you're not compensated with higher cash flows, then that obviously has a value impact. Um, the way we've always approached invest, investing and, and valuation is to use those long-term numbers as I spoke about. Um, and that's why we've been cautious to most of our investors now for a number of years that we felt that investment markets for infrastructure were expensive overall. The way we have attacked that problem is to be concentrated in the portfolios we've delivered for clients. And we believe you needed to be incredibly selective about the stocks that you owned. And the reason we've been able to perform well during what's been a difficult period to allocate capital is because of that concentrated uh, approach and focusing on, you know, companies that we still believed were trading below intrinsic value, you know, the same truism that we spoke about at the outset. Well, let's get into filtering down the investing universe and, and talk about um, get towards some specific opportunities that that you're finding. Um, you know, with regards to filtering down the investable universe from a country perspective, um, and also from the different um, types of assets that sit within infrastructure um, and the universe that are on that are on exchange, which is where you invest. Can you tell me about that that filtering process and and perhaps bring in that context that different countries have got different, um, you know backdrops from a macro and also at the country specific the jurisdiction 
level, um, how do you break down that universe? Sure. Um, so we we were fortunate that when we started offering this strategy to clients that there were very few people that were doing it. Um, you, know, you can we, It's either ourselves or Macquarie that have the bragging rights of bringing the first publicly traded um, listed infrastructure uh, strategy to market. Um, and what that meant was there were no indices. So we weren't shackled with the problem that many investors face with, you know, having to justify an existence relative to what someone at Standard & Poor's or, uh, or or some other um, or MSCI determine should be in their index in inverted commas. So, you know, we started with a blank sheet of paper and said, look, there are probably around at the time 300 odd, um, today I'd say between four and 500 odd um, companies that you would call infrastructure in inverted commas. Um, we use a series of filters um, l- which predominantly are going towards trying to identify monopoly assets with inflation protected attributes and consistent predictable operating performance. They're the three tenants of what we believe um, define what we call preferred infrastructure, which is our investable universe. So when you start with 400, which is what you know my mum and dad, the man and woman in the street would call infrastructure, you get down to less than 100 that are what we are prepared to invest capital in because they are the monopoly-like assets with inflation protected attributes and a low risk of capital loss, predictable operating performance. Um, so that that hundred then is broadly split in, and, and we only invest in the developed world. Um, we've continued to shy away from emerging markets. There is a lot of infrastructure development that will occur there. That brings with it development risk, firstly, but the key risk that you bear in infrastructure generally is regulatory and political. These are essential service assets. Um, you know, where we're recording this today, you've only got to lean out the window and have a look up the road and you'll see probably the prettiest infrastructure asset in the globe. It's Sydney Harbour Bridge, right? Um, it's done the same job for 90 something years now, um, which is to prov- allow people to traverse from the north to the south of the harbour and you've paid a toll for the privilege. Um you know that is a very sensitive political asset. If someone, if some government decided to, for whatever reason, jack the tolls up immeasurably, your choice not to use that road is is limited. And so that quasi slash monopoly status is what makes them politically very sensitive, and why we shy away from China, India, most emerging market nations because we don't think you're compensated for that political and regulatory risk with higher returns. Um, and so we've stuck to our knitting, we've stuck to developed world. And even within that, you've then got to understand how the nuances of regulation work. So I touched on this earlier in terms of inflation protection, but it's the most important point with allocating capital in infrastructure today is the distinction between an implied inflation protection and an explicit inflation protection. If you look at what occurs in the UK, in Australia, where we adopted the UK regulatory framework, and in Europe, there is explicit inflation protection. I mentioned earlier, when the RPI number came out, that number got fed through the rate, the regulatory asset base of National Grid and of United Utilities, Severn Trent. These are UK um, listed regulatory assets. There are similar assets like Turner, Stamre Gas in Italy uh, that have, when the inflation number comes out, that is the number that gets fed through. 
There is no judgment call. There is no, you know, you know, a regulator sitting there saying, oh, I think it should be more like this. No, that's the number. That's what goes through. The US, which has had a regulatory system that's been around for 120 years uh, and works perfectly well, is what I'll call a first generation, not a second generation system. And so it's a nominal rate of return on historical cost assets. It's getting a little technical, but when you take a nominal rate of return, it's an invest an investor, sorry, it's a regulator who's doing the job of an investor saying, what is the, in inverted commas, right return that I should give this regulated utility in the US? So when inflation's running as it is hot in the US at the moment, there is no defined adjustment mechanism for the vast majority of US utilities. There's a couple that have some subtle changes, but you know we're talking 95% of the US utilities, which are half of our investable universe, half of the most, ind most indices out there is US utes, and virtually all of them have this regulator who has to sit there and say, what is the right return today? Now, what that's meant is as we've been going into this lower interest rate environment, they've been frankly making out like bandits. Because what the regulator's been doing is been saying, what's the right return for the next 10 plus years? Well, I'm probably going to be influenced a little bit by where the 10-year treasury bond yield is, but I'm not going to be that overly influenced if what I'm trying to do is to incentivize an asset, a, a capital provider to provide capital for the next decade plus. So I'm going to be looking at what the long-term return on equity should be, which is the way they're regulated in the US. And so they've gravitated around 10%, which is where they've been for 30 years. Now, Yes, they've moved down a little bit. They've probably gone into the high nines. Yes, there are some states where, like Arizona, where they're, you know, God forbid, they do it, they do eight and a half return on equity. When your bond yield is two, that's still a pretty darn good premium above bond yields. Because historically, if you go back over long histories, it's typically 500 basis points. Or if the long-term bond yield is, as we suggest, 5%, then the long-term return on equity should be around 10, 10.5%. That all makes sense in a, in a fundamental framework. Uh, it all makes sense in, in a theoretical framework as well. So that's they're the right numbers. What's happened for US Utes is the market started to believe low bond yields forever, and the regulator is going to be asleep at the wheel and allow you know, close to 10% return on equity with a 2% bond yield. That's an 8% gap, not a 5%. And what we're increasingly now confident we will see is that as bond yields rise, and inevitably they will in the US, we will not see a commensurate change in the return on equity because they've basically been over-earning for the better part of a decade. Now, what we think will happen then is that in their infinite wisdom, US investors will stop paying you know, historically incredibly high multiples for these US utilities. Historically, go back the last 30 years, they traded on 12, 13 times earnings. Last couple of years, they've traded on 20. Why? Because the regulator was giving them a 10% return and the, bond, and, the, and the investment community was saying it was only 2% risk-free. That's a, that's a free lunch. So we're gonna, we're gonna bid these stocks up. So we think you'll see a big derating of US utilities. That is the key risk for the infrastructure market today. And the implications of that are quite stark because most indices and most typically infrastructure portfolios will have 
close to 50% allocated to US Utes. Our, our, our portfolio's got less than 10. And that, that is the biggest difference we have today. Now I'm talking my book, right? That's my job, right? I'm here to, to tell you that I, I think I've got an insight that's different from the markets, but I'd like someone to challenge the clarity of the argument I've just made. So out of the, the peer group that you invest against, what percentage of that asset pool is linked to that index versus index unaware as uh, the way that you invest? Most people would say they're index unaware, but then you look at their portfolios and they've got half of it in US Utes, and that's what half the index is. So, you know, there are, there are, there are people who are genuinely index uh, aware investors um, and, and, and they will have, you know, typically significantly more stocks than we'll have in the portfolio as I, you know, we're, we're down to 26 stocks today. Um, you know, they'll be up around a hundred or more. Um, and, 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 and they're, they're offering a different type of in, in investment, uh, offering than we're, what we're doing. But so, so for people looking at their infrastructure exposure right now and thinking about risks, is that the number one thing that you think they should be that, focused that, on? That's it. And the problem with this is I'm the boy who cried wolf because we've been talking about this as a risk for the better part of five plus years to our investors and to anyone that would listen. The issue is it's now the moment at which you will have to make that call that, that you, you know, will regulators allow you historically egregious returns when rates rise, will they say, actually, you're right, we should be giving them now 13% return on equity when you look back and go, actually, that's still an outrageous return in a market. If bond yields do go to 5%, will they give them 800 basis points above the risk-free rate? I don't think so. And, you know, if 10.5 is the right return on equity and 5% is the risk-free rate, guess what? In a fundamental theoretical model, you end up with about 12, 13 times PE, which is, hey, presto, where they've traded for 30 years, it's not rocket science. Keep it simple. So, at a country level, where where is the where is the what's the breakdown of where you're currently allocated? So, the, by that, and and that's the biggest call that we've made. And but because of that, that means that we find assets um, in Europe, um, in the UK, and and some in Australia. Although there's a dwindling supply of those, given all the takeovers that have occurred, um, that's where we're, that's where we're finding opportunities today. Um, that that said, in the US, uh, we can find some utilities, some of those that have the the the, the uh, adjusters for for rate increases. We, we we see some value in those, and we also see value in US railroads, which have a totally different regulatory system. Um, you alluded to it there. We've seen large institutions and, and consortiums looking to take listed infrastructure assets private. What impact is that having on valuations? And, and do you expect that trend to continue? Uh, I do expect the trend to continue. Um, I think, and the reason is very simple. There is, um, I think it's Prequin come out with a number which is around 200 to $250 billion of dry powder that private equity firms have raised to invest in infrastructure that's yet to be allocated. Now, that's equity. Um, they typically will put a lot of debt with that. So let's call it circa $500 billion. Um, there isn't a lot of assets out there that uh, at this point that, that, that money's chasing. So that's bid up prices um, inevitably. And on top of that, you've got sovereign wealth funds and pension plans like the Canadians and even the Australians who are looking to invest directly on their own basis outside of private equity guys or alongside them in many, in many cases. So there is a, uh, a definite uh, uh, 
you know, if if, if you want a, a, a definite, uh, I'll call them beast at the door, wanting to take our little beautiful little stocks away from us, if they pay a price that is commensurate with uh, what we think is a premium that's warranted, um, then we're happy to sell to them. But um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of money chasing very few available deals, and so they're coming to the listed market inevitably. Um, and you know, they may have different risk return. Equations. They may have different assumptions they're prepared to use to value those stocks. They may have different benchmarks, different hurdle rates. Um, and, and we have seen, you know, as you say, a lot of activity. I think that will continue. Um, but there's the other side of the equation, which is, you know, there is a lot of infrastructure assets that still could be privatized globally. Um, Europe the U- and the UK really did embark upon this. The US did it with utilities over a hundred years ago, but they the US has very few uh, toll roads that are privately owned. So turnpikes are a, and airports are a natural hunting ground um, for privatization. But you could have asked me that question 20 years ago, I would have given you the same answer. It's political will. Will governments be prepared to sell assets and in, invariably sell them to foreigners. And that's the, the, the biggest issue that they face if they, uh, if they wanted. The alternative is, of course, to do the right thing as we see it and to list them on local exchanges and allow people like us to manage money for their, for their uh, constituents and voters. But um, At the start of this interview, you told me how much of a dyed-in-the-wool value investor you are. We've just talked about a scenario where there's a scarcity of assets and and a lot of capital chasing them. Do value opportunities still exist in the sector? And given you've got to put money to work, I was hoping you could talk me through something that you think looks compelling. Yeah, sure. There's look, it is hard, and we haven't shied away from that. It is difficult to allocate capital today and to generate um, a, a return that we think is commensurate with the risk. Um, so we've concentrated the portfolio into a select group of, uh, of names that we think are offering us decent upside um, to that intrinsic value. And to be brutally honest, there's a couple of stocks in there that are that, that we own that are you know marginal inclusions. We do it for diversification of, of, of risk. Um, where do I see some some compelling opportunities today? Um, probably in. in in the toll road space, Ferrovial would be a name that jumps out at me. Um, they're considered a diversified, in inverted commas, infrastructure owner. Eighty percent of the value is for assets. Fifty um, percent of their value is the four hundred seven in Ontario, Canada, um, which has been impacted by lockdowns and the Canadian government being um, a little more um, let's let, let's say dogmatic about you know allowing things to open and uh, and be a bit more cautious is probably a better term uh, around the reopening of that and that's impacted traffic flows um, on the 407 it's got 88 years to go on its concession and it is essentially an unregulated monopoly it sits adjacent to the busiest road in North America which is the 401 um, it has one of the most liberal tolling regimes you could possibly imagine, which is as long as it doesn't double tolls in six months, it can charge whatever it likes to whoever comes. It's it's the closest thing to a monopoly that you would ever wish to see. As I um, I don't have children, but I have nieces and nephews. I always, when they're young, I always read them my favourite nursery rhyme, which is the three Billy Gates gruff. It's a troll. 
you got to pay the bridge to cross, you got to pay the toll to cross the bridge. Um, and I say to them, who do you want to be, the goats or do you want to be the guy that owns the bridge? So um, it's a great asset and we think it's underappreciated. They also have three roads in Fort Worth, Texas, which are close to the same. They're dynamically tolled. So essentially you travel on a road at 80 miles an hour and as congestion builds, the toll increases to maintain that speed. Um, they are... When you look at the world and you look at the world through the lens that I see, they are fairly close to unique assets. Um, and you know, it's it's in our in our view, um, conservatively on conservative assumptions, it's inexpensively priced. Well, Warren, that concludes the the main part of the interview. And the rules of investing has three regular questions, which I thought we'd just dive into to to finish up on. Um, so, if we can get into those, I was hoping you could share a book or a, could be a podcast, could be a movie, something that you've seen that's had a lasting impact on, on how you think about investing and, and why did it resonate with you? Sure. Um, in terms of books, I mean, everyone talks about, you know, The Snowball written by Warren Buffett by Elise Schroeder and, you know, What Works on Wall Street, O'Shaughnessy's book. And, you know, clearly, you know, if you're not a value guy, if you can't quote something out of security analysis by Ben Graham. Um, the, the two that I like the most, uh, I got a really little simple book by Robert Heller, which was just titled Warren Buffett and the, and the Way He Invests. It was given to me by a uni professor uh, 25 years ago now, and it's just a real little thin book. I, I really like it. It's got some Sounds nice- like my kind of book. <laughs> that I, I like them small and thin. Uh, pitch as well. As well. Um, but for probably personal reasons, uh, about three odd years ago, I was given a book by a friend of mine called The Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Um, and there's some there's ten lessons in there that I find extremely useful. But it was it was the it was the personal giving of that book for something that uh, only he and I will talk about that, uh, that resonates with me and is probably my favourite investment text. Ed- Edmund Lefevre is that that's right? the one. Yeah. yeah, very good. Could you share the story of a big win or a big loss? We enjoy the losses because a bit, bit of pain. Yeah, um, that uh, that you endured during your investing career. Yeah. W- what happened and, and, and what was the lesson? As a value guy, I can tell you that, that if you want a litmus test if someone's a true value investor versus not, they will always remember their losses and they'll and they'll struggle to remember their big wins because um, you 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 heard from those. Um, I'll tell you about the big win. Uh, I've only had one 10-bagger. It was Microsoft, one of the great businesses of the world, and I paid a very, very good price for it and made 10 times my money. Um, I bought it at 25 bucks, sold it at 250 and then watched it go all the way to $380. So, um, you know. You left some value for someone some else. left some value for the next guy because they've got to come back. That was very kind of you, Warren. Very kind of me. Very charitable. <laughs> <laughs> the other, but the, the losses was PMP magazines. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you end up buying the world, you know, the best printing business in Australia, dominant player in a, what is a really crap, awful industry. And in fact, it was probably more important than the loss, the gain I made out of Microsoft because it was the losses in that in in PMP that made us focus our attention on uh, the infrastructure strategy and and the definition of preferred infrastructure and our uh, our global equity franchise strategy and our our definition around equity franchises and trying to don't put the cart before the horse. Don't just buy a cheap stock. Define the type of business that you want to own. And then look for value within that defined universe, and and that's been a great life lesson for me. Last question, and and before I get into this question, just for viewers out there, just be reminded that 
that this is an exercise in long-term thinking. It's a hypothetical question and we're certainly not recommending that you go out there and buy a single stock and own a single stock portfolio. It is meant to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking. So take that disclaimer. Um, having said that, Warren, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, which company would that be and why? It's easy. Simple question. And the reason it's a simple question is that's how we invest money. We essentially, when we invest money, we, eventually, we essentially say, what is the value in five years' time? What is the price I'm paying today? And what's the dividend I get on the way through? And we create IRRs for the companies within our investable universes, and we buy the ones that are uh, that offer the greatest IRR. So it's the way we think about it. So the simple thing is to just tell you what's the two top stocks on on the in, in our investable universe. Um, I mentioned one earlier, Ferrovial. I've told you the good story, and I can tell you it's attractively priced today. So um, uh, that's 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 clearly one. Then the other one is um, in our global equity franchise portfolio is IGT. Um, which has the unfortunate uh, title and one of the co conversations I'm having with the companies to change its bloody name because everyone still thinks it's a gaming machine business. It's the world's biggest lottery operator. It operates lotteries that are four times larger than what Tattersall's business used to do and it's trading on a third of the multiple. Um, to, to me, they're the two easy stocks and they're, they're ones that you know I do think about with a five-year view. Um, so, Yeah. As I said, don't go and buy one stock. Go and buy our fund. It's a much better idea for the people out there. But uh, if you want two names, that that's them. Superb. Well, Warren, that is the end of the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed learning more about infrastructure. I really enjoyed um, having a chat today and and um, you know taking a deep dive into an asset class that I know is uh, you know really interesting in front of mind for a lot of our investors. So thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. Remember, you can go and leave a review, give us a like on Livewire, and uh, the Rules of Investing will be back in two weeks' time. We've got Dave Thornton will be back hosting Vince Pizzullo, who's the Deputy Head of Equities at Perpetual. It should be a great episode. Thanks so much for listening.